everyone, my name's Alice. Welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. In this episode, I get to talk with Claire Albrecht, who is a Newcastle-based poet. And I know Claire through a reading group that we're both part of. A bunch of us have been reading Michael Farrell's latest book, I Love Poetry, and talking through each of the poems one by one. So I felt like I already knew Claire when we started this chat. And then I realized about a quarter of the way through that I had never really had a conversation with her about where she was from or where I was from or any of that. Um, But before we even get to that, we're already chatting about a whole bunch of things. We cover heaps of ground in this discussion, everything from the Mighty Boosh to Eileen Miles, Margaret Atwood, talk a bit about some... Australian poets, including Anupama Pilbrow, Melinda Bufton, and of course, we include a little chat about Dawson's Creek and whether it's okay to spend time watching Dawson's Creek in 2019 uh, and whether that could be part of your creative process. So, I really hope you enjoy this chat with Claire. I was just looking back at our Michael Farrell reading group thread and realizing ah. that we, our first conversation was about my favorite topic, the mighty bush. Oh yes, of course. And yes, your, um, your little picture to me before mighty bush is always on my mind. Always, always. Everything leads back to the bush. Exactly. Somehow, <laughs> which is actually kind of scary when I think about it because it's just the most obscure show that I think I'll probably ever watch. It's very poetic, though, I think. I mean, I've watched it that many times. So many of the sketches are like little poems to me in my mind. Yeah, yeah, no, I can see that. They're um, they're kind of beautiful, strange little worlds in themselves. Yeah, love the bush. Um, Yeah, we were reminded (laughs) of it by uh, a poem in Michael Farrell's book, I Love Poetry, which we are part of a little online reading group, slowly going through the book together. And the poem was, oh, K in the Castle. K in the Castle. I mean, it's surprising that it wasn't Kangaroo Moon because both of those things also remind me of the Mighty Boosh with the first episode with the kangaroo and then Monsoon Moon. Yeah, yeah, Monsoon Moon, yeah. (laughs) I don't know, maybe I should ask Michael if he's ever seen the Mighty Boosh. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, if he hasn't, it's it's wild. Yeah. So apart from the Mighty Bush, what's been on your mind recently poetry-wise? What have you been working on or thinking about? Mm, Well, I've been trying to think about my uh, major project, which is writing my first full-length book called Handshake. And um, that's part of my PhD project at the Uni of Newcastle with Kerry Glastonbury. And I guess it's a... um, a follow-up to my chapbook, which came out late last year, Pinky Swear. And it's um, an extension of that, I suppose. The Pinky Swear is the small gesture and the handshake is the is the bigger one that sort of is an introduction to the world in a way, I guess. Um, but I've just been, I don't know, the, the holidays are hard when you're trying to um, – get time to write and get yourself in the right headspace. I've just struggled a little, but um, on the weekend I was at Margaret Atwood in Sydney. Oh, Um, did she give a talk? 
She did to a packed Sydney Opera House audience. That's and, right. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. You, you got to go. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, my friend Lauren um, picked me up around lunchtime and we zoomed down the freeway because I'm in Newcastle and we um, we basically made it with minus five minutes to spare and so we're running up the stairs to the absolute top part of the opera house and sat down as they were introducing her and she walked onto stage so it was Perfect. one of those moments where you just you just get there just in time but we could have easily you know got stuck in traffic it was just so nice to be there and listen to a talk even though the first 15 minutes was uh, Margaret singing songs uh, a song about how big Canada is was odd she was singing she was singing yeah yep (laughs) was did anyone expect that no it was absolutely bizarre and um, everyone was sort of doing that quiet giggle like is this is this funny? Is this going to be the whole thing? <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was really weird. But, um, what did, how that, did she explain that? Was that just something that she does now? Or? Well, I don't know. I guess she was maybe trying to ease us into the kind of existential dread. The world is terrible and everything's collapsing around us that she later went into with a little bit of <laughs> lighthearted sing song. I'm just not sure, but in the end, it was actually, thinking back on it, a nice contrast to have that little moment against the heavier anxiety-ridden stuff that she was getting into and that people were asking questions about in the question time. That is fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah so. I got to see Eileen Miles when she was down here in Melbourne and mm. um, one of the questions asked was kind of long, convoluted, um, one of those, you know, dreadful audience questions that goes nowhere and makes no sense. That ends I, up being a statement rather than a question. Yes, sort of, but also neither. And um, Eileen replied by just saying, you mean what is it like to be a human at the end of the world? I'm just like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this sounds yeah. like maybe similar themes. Yeah, it's kind of what it boiled down to. I mean, she, Margaret is quite old and she was saying uh, – I don't know, she was saying how the next time we see her, she'll be fertilising a tree and that what she's thinking about these days is not so much her place in our our future but how she's going to dispose of her own body and it just put me in this state of kind of poetic anxiety where if this person who has had so much to do with, I guess, the way that I see the world and so many of um, my generation and before who now is going to be the non-profit of of our generation of writers who talks towards the future that we might have in this bizarre political environmental state that we're in. Mm. I vote for Morgan Parker. Morgan that's, Parker. That's my vote. Uh, I okay. think she's amazing. She's. Do you have anyone in mind? No, I was actually going to get up and ask Margaret what she thought mm. and if she was, you know, handing on the torch to someone, but... Um, 60 other people had varying uh, <laughs> interesting or not so interesting questions that they also wanted answered and they only got through four because I think the questions lasted longer than the answers. Oh, that's so dire. I wish there was a way to control for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what did you do no. after that? You're in Sydney. You've just been talking about 
the end of the world with Margaret Atwood. Did you guys go <laughs> for a drink or what did you do? Um, yeah, well, we went and got food at Spice AM Thai, which is just uh, super delicious. And I used to live in Sydney and really enjoyed eating there. So we went and got some Thai food before I just jumped on the train back because my friend uh, was quite ill. She had this sore throat that I've now uh, taken on board. Uh-huh. So I'm sitting here with my tea and my Ugg boots on trying to be a cute little sick person. Um, but yeah, I jumped on the train and instead of, uh, kind of dealing with those thoughts, I practiced escapism and read Swallows and Amazons on my e-reader, which is, uh, do you, have you read it? Oh, uh, Swallows and Amazons. I have not. It's, have. <laughs> it's basically a kid's book by Arthur Ransom from back in the thirties that it's just this, these four siblings who go sailing and camp on an Island for five days while their mum for some reason is totally cool with that. <laughs> uh, and they so, just light fires and go on adventures. Oh, wow. It sounds yeah. like maybe like the railway children, famous fire. Yeah. 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 All that sort of genre. Very cool. much um, escapist for me. I've, I've recently realized that I need something a little bit uh, more, accessible and friendly to go in between the moments of chaos yeah yeah completely um wow well we've covered the bush and we've covered the end of the world uh (laughs) i just want to pause for a minute because i think we're doing that classic thing of two people who write poetry and just skip straight to the poetry i i know nothing about you and your life and i'd love to Mm -hmm. find out more um uh, but I'll go first. I'm, uh, I was a long time Canberra and I moved to Melbourne in 2011 and I've lived here since then and I've written poetry for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Over to you. Okay. Um, well, I am what they call a Novocastrian. I was born in Newcastle. I went to school here. All my family are from Western Australia, so I spent a lot of summers over there and went to school a little bit over there. Um, so that features a lot in my whole self, I guess. Um, I moved to Sydney to go to university um, after a year's break of being a lazy drinking 18-year-old. And, yeah, I just lived in Sydney for a few years studying creative writing, went to Germany for a year and um, studied German literature over there. And then moved back to Newcastle because I ran out of money and Sydney costs uh, way too fucking much to live in. So Mm. since then, I've been back here. Started my PhD last year, I think, or the year before. Someone should probably keep track of that. It's probably me. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe don't. Yeah. Yeah, maybe don't keep track of it. Just pretend it'll go forever. Yeah. And were you writing poetry um, for a lot of that time while you were at uni and things like that or...? While I was at uni, yeah, I um, I started writing what I thought was prose and actually was um, probably prose poetry and then did my first um, couple of writing electives in poetry and realised that I actually really loved writing it. My first full poetry seminar was with Martin Harrison and it sort of opened my eyes up to the potential of what, I might be able to um, write and read and become a part of the community. But then I took a few years off university and I really just struggled to write anything. Um, Yeah, you will do that. 
Yeah, but also, I don't know, something about having someone tell you that you have to write uh, was really helpful for me. And as soon as no one was saying you need to write this much or send me something right now, I I just didn't do it, Mm. Um, which I guess was why I went back to uni just because I wanted a little bit of a uh, push from someone who would get me writing again. Yeah, right. And and you have. So you've got Pinky Swear. <laughs> yeah. Pinky Swear has come out from Sir Loris, which is a yeah. Puncher and Watman series. And yeah. it's so funny and so <laughs> enjoyable. Um, I had such a lovely afternoon reading it. And, yeah. yeah, I think that's why I felt so easy jumping into this conversation with you because I feel like I know you through these poems really well. Yeah. Well, that was kind of the idea, I mean, behind the pinky swear. It's like people have asked me what it means and why I called it that. And I guess just because it's like a promise of sincerity and I wanted the poems to be sincere in a way or at least frank about the kind of person that I am and the things that I think about. Yeah, um, but you've managed to do that in a, in a really non-earnest, <laughs> light-hearted way. Yeah, I don't think anyone's ever accused me of being particularly earnest, which is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the last chapbook that I wrote before Pinky Swear was called Sediment and it was a chapbook of eco-poetry that I actually wrote for my honours. And I feel like maybe that was earnest and it wasn't quite me. I mean, eco-poetry features in a way in Pinky Swear, but, um, yeah, it was just so focused on mm. that one genre that I think I lost a bit of myself in it yeah um yeah there's ways to talk about the end of the world and the mighty bush at the same time and I guess pinky swear does that yeah um yeah when uh, the poets you read um are they a similar tone in terms of that sincerity without earnestness or that's what I look for definitely Mm. um I don't – I historically haven't read as much poetry as I have novels and certainly in the novels that I read there's a, a a style that I go for that I guess is quite dense in terms of the content but the delivery is sharp or witty or wry in some kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the poetry that I read now is almost – generally but not exclusively contemporary Australian work that I think there is quite a lot of that going around. I mean, you've talked to Anupama Pilbro and I I think her way of looking at the world is quite similar to mine and we've we've kind of bonded over our poetic weirdness. That's so great. I I had such a fantastic moment with a friend of mine recently. I sent them um, Anupama's semi-automatic and – this is a friend who's sort of new to poetry mm. and uh, their response was just, fuck yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. She, um, Anupama read in Newcastle at Girls on Key uh, last weekend, I think. Oh, cool. And um, so a lot of her poems are, you know, gross stuff, she calls it, and bodily Mm. So she was reading from body poems and uh, two of the people next to me who, one of which is a poet also in the Slow Loris series, Trisha Pender, uh, they were sitting there and just hiding their faces in their hands but laughing at the same time because of of how just grotesque but also beautiful it was. 
That's so funny. Yeah, when uh, Anupama read at um, sick leave down here in Melbourne recently, she was saying the same thing, that these poems were quite gross. But <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't find them to be personally. Um, I do yeah, find it either. incredible what they include. Yeah. But, yeah. They definitely deal with gross stuff objectively. Mm. But I guess the way that she treats them, um, they become filtered into this kind of abstract, beautiful thing. Yeah. That I just love. Yeah, no, I definitely want to cheerlead for that book. It's a it's a <laughs> tiny it's a physically tiny book, body poems, but it packs the biggest punch and yeah, I I wish it, I saw it more in bookshops. Um but yeah, if if anybody listening finds it, yeah. Get it. Exactly. Yeah, I I hope that they print a lot more of them and mm. make them available because mm. It's got to get more out there. Yeah. I, yeah. There's a few of those short run um, chat books and small series like that that just have been so incredible and award winning and amazing. And the, I guess, you know, the size of them means that they just aren't reproduced so often. Yeah. You've got to seek them out. Yeah. Um, could I ask you to read a poem or two from Pinky Swear at this point? Yeah, sure. Sweet. I will have to read from my PDF because I don't have my own copy anymore until it's reprinted. It's a very good problem to have. Yeah, I know, except when you go to a reading and you're expected to have a copy of your own book at least. True. And she's like, no, sorry, I either lost it or I sold it (laughs) accidentally. Um, Do you have any that you would particularly like me to read i would really love to hear you read the poem that is called hey (laughs) okay sure um i will read that for you now sweet hey are we friends yet i feel like i have shared a lot with you when i write poems i think about your eyes and how they move when they meet the words and the arch of your eyebrows when you find something funny. I hope this makes us somehow close. And during that, my dog was scratching at his ear. I heard Uh, that. (laughs) (laughs) That was a nice little addition. Yeah, he's part of the poem. Um, And, yeah, I I don't know if you'd like me to read it again or... Oh, that's fine. No, I think we should keep the scratch in. Um, Keep the scratch. Keep the scratch. Good dog. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I love that one because, uh, yeah, I think it just sums up what I was sort of talking about before. You can kind of form relationships through poetry um, and you're not really sure kind of how much further it goes beyond the poems, but it feels like such a, a deep connection and you don't necessarily know things about each other's daily lives. I mean, yeah, I have I have quite a few friendships like that now, which I find really beautiful. But, yeah, there's that question, like, I hope this makes us somehow close, like, it's a type of closeness, but yeah. yeah. And I mean, with lyric poetry, especially when the poems are on their own, I feel like sometimes people like to place um, uh, uh, someone that I'm addressing the poem to that's not themselves. Or I, I really wanted the reader to feel like they were the one being addressed throughout the majority of this book. So we had some, you know, some people looking at some of the poems in workshops and saying, oh, is this about, you know, your partner or your family or someone? Mm-hmm. People and want I mean, to know. People want yeah. to know the, the person 
the living person that the poem is about. <laughs> if there's an I, there must be a you. And I mean, there is, but it's you. The person reading it is the you, regardless of whether you feel like you want to be put in that position. I'm, yeah. I'm putting you there anyway, uh, yeah. which I guess goes a bit into what my next book will be, which is that, but a bit more uncomfortable. Yeah, cool. Mm, hopefully. Totally. No, that sounds great. Um, that was my pick, but um, would you like to read your own choice from the book? Um, no, I mean, the one that I normally get asked to read and um, will read at events is the one previous to Hay, which is the sort of feature poem, I suppose, of the collection. Uh, I don't need to read it, I guess, um, it's around on the internet if anyone wants to have a look, but it's the anxiety poem that's sort of the um, combination of anxiety and politics and sex that I I guess I'm working towards uh, looking into in most of my poems now. I reckon, yeah, definitely read it if you, if you can, if you want to. Sure. I'd love to hear it. All right. Anxiety. Anxiety is the millennial condition, says a clickbait article I think I read somewhere. As for my own tangles, well, there are some parties you just shouldn't go to. I'm one gnarled shoot of a gnarly nervous system, jacked up on caffeine-free cokes and celery and clenching my teeth at that cunt of a waiter who probably had a panic attack five minutes ago. This basically makes us sisters. You aren't lazy, you're just terrified, is the latest feel-good production of the meme machine. But I can tell you right now I'm definitively both. Don't pretend they're mutually exclusive. I can drop a potato chip down the sleeve of my knitted jumper while I fear for all our futures. Either vacuum off for months, feeling petrified of filling one. But what's a bit of dust floating around? At night, I try to dream of Putin, just to see what he'd be like. Shirtless, playing piano... I sprawl naked on his lounge, stringing cheese between my fingers and feeling the softness of what's probably bare pelt tucked up under my ass. I tell him he can sanction and annex whatever he likes if he promises not to meddle in my domestic affairs. And we watch porn together, tapes of Trump pissing on women. He tells me his fantasies and I tell him mine. And when I try to fuck him from behind, he gets antsy, grunts out a veto, Something about NATO and the security of his borders and I get bored again. Make a smoothie and sit cross-legged on my deck watching bats. Things like, do you think Princess Diana liked pineapple on her pizza? Not a metaphor, but I'd be interested either way. My earrings shake in the air like icicles in an earthquake. Thank you. Thanks for reading that. <laughs> That's all right. Um, I, yeah. I always enjoy reading it. It's such a dumb but delightful thing that I just spat out at one point in my life. It's a hundred percent bush at the end of the world. <laughs> Did it take you long to write? Uh, no, it took me quite a while to internally work out what I was going to do with it. I tend to spend a lot of time writing in my head before it comes out. And um, then once this did, I think I had intended it to be two separate poems and realised that it was actually one. Um, and I, I, I probably tried to do it as two for a while and then put it together. But, yeah, 
once it came out, it was a pretty quick process of a day or two editing it and getting it to where I wanted it to be. Mm. Yeah, this is the secret sort of unspoken thing about poetry is that <laughs> once you start writing, it actually doesn't take very long. But there's <laughs> yeah. huge amounts of time spent not writing, thinking and, yeah, feeling bad about not writing and all that stuff. Yeah, the it's guilt is outrageous. <laughs> it sounds like you've been going through a pretty intense period of that. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I feel like it's um, it always goes towards some kind of large output when I have so much time where I'm not writing anything. I mean, that that's really a lie. I have been writing. I just haven't had any of those moments where I feel like it all clicks and comes together for a month or two. Yeah, as I've said on here multiple times before, it's, it is my sincere belief that even though in those periods where you're not writing, there's a huge amount of guilt, it does actually count. Something's happening. Yeah, and I think if I didn't believe that, I would be in some kind of crisis mode with my PhD. Uh, I do kind of cherish the times that I get to think about what I want to do. And half of that is me trying desperately not to watch trashy 90s shows on TV and pretending that that's work. Um, but it's all part of the process. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> have you read, um, have you read any of Melinda Bufton's work? Yeah. I went to Melinda Bufton's launch, uh, the Newcastle launch. Yeah, great. I mean, I don't know how she'd feel about me saying this, but I, I, I suspect that she would count watching trashy, trashy 90s shows as part of the work as well. I know when we chatted, she talked about um, watching music videos to get her into a headspace yeah. to write. Mm. And mm. yeah, just that kind of like Bowerbird-like collection of references and images and ideas. Um, and look, you know, Nothing wrong with a trashy 90s show. What are you watching? Well, <laughs> at the moment I'm actually re-watching Gossip Girl and I'm really, really sorry to the world about that because it is actually terrible but um, in in so many ways just deeply wondrous as well. But uh, what I was doing and sort of still am, I, I've watched Dawson's Creek the whole way through in my life probably about 12 to 14 times. Oh, my God. There's no <laughs> way I could watch that show again. It's way uh, too connected to my life at the time. I just, yeah, wow. Yep, yep. Uh, it's very connected to mine as well. And I feel like I get into this weird kind of high school meditative state where everything seems to matter more and I'm a lot sadder about everything. But <laughs> I can yeah, imagine. I, just, I keep doing it to myself. And I ended up, um, I ended up thinking, wouldn't it be fun to make a Twitter account where I just write poems from the perspective of Dawson's Creek characters and wouldn't that be a great way to just get out of my headspace but still be writing poetry? I was going to say, like, there's got to be Dawson's Creek poems. Well, there weren't so many, but uh -huh. now, there, now there are more, I guess, than there were before because I did do that and um, – I realized that, in fact, it is not a fun and happy exercise, but actually all of the poems are deeply depressing and sad and um, all of the characters in Dawson's Creek were super troubled. So yeah, it's I can't imagine it ages well. Uh, not really, but, I mean, there are shows that age worse and the characters just... Uh, 
I don't know, there's something that is just essentially depressive about all of them that really speaks to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my main memory of Dawson's Creek is what is just being so excited by the Jack storyline. Because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think that was... I mean, there's a lot of shows and movies that lay claim to this, but I believe it was the first gay kiss on primetime TV. Is that right? I think you're right. Yeah. I would fact check that, but I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Jack was a pretty complicated character in terms of how you can see him as a sort of icon there was a lot of questionable stuff that went down as well but I don't know what it is about that show Uh, my friends and family tell me that it's a problem (laughs) (laughs) you're headed for an intervention (laughs) yeah well I think that's why I wrote the poems because I thought at least if something creative is coming out of this they can't take it from me (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny I think it's okay to have your comfort watching material yeah, for sure. The The only thing is, I mean, I'm, I'm at home working on this PhD and um, when there are the downtimes that I'm not writing poetry, it's very easy to just watch a series um, after series and lose sight of being a creative person at all. So there's a balance that I need to strike between pop culture as a creative impulse and uh, um, influence on my work and just downright being a dirty couch slob. Right, yeah, and a distraction. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I yeah, that's a really good point, actually. And I think um, a lot of the time on here I'm sort of making the case for be kind to yourself during the fallow periods and um, recognise that this is all going towards something. And uh, what I don't often say, which is something else that I, I do really believe, is that you got to work. Yeah. you got to sit down great. and make stuff. Yeah. You got to do it regularly and and you have to kind of just do it when you don't feel like it. Yeah. But um I don't want to come across as grumpy or prescriptive, so I don't say that very often. <laughs> yeah, but I mean it's true and somehow I feel like the more time you have, the easier it becomes to not do the work that you need to be doing because you yeah. consistently seem to be able to say I've got time, I can do that later. Yeah, that but is actually, one, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, developing a routine. Um I would really love to say that I write every day. Uh but I don't yet somehow I'm still working up to it. Uh, it just seems like this obstacle to overcome that when I do, I'll like unlock this amazing creative potential and there'll be no stopping me. Mm-hmm. No. Well, okay. So that's where I, that's where I take issue with the uh, Liz Gilberts and Annie Lamotts and Stephen King's mm-hmm. of the world. Yeah. I think that the daily writing practice is like, if that's, if that's your process, amazing but it's such a high standard to hold oneself to yeah and if you don't achieve it every single day like okay so I'm sitting in front of a notebook here where I have the dates of the week written out at the top and I have the the days along there and a little column for writing and like a place to tick if I write something every day so I'm trying to do this as well that's pretty nice yeah but what the reason I'm doing that is to give myself a visual representation of like you did it five days out of seven, you did it three days out of four. The fact that you didn't do it every day doesn't mean that it's a failure. 
Mm. Um, just try to prove that to myself because yeah once you get into that spiral of I'm not writing I don't write enough I'm never gonna get anywhere then that's really sucks your motivation essentially absolutely and as a poet who struggles with anxiety and writes about anxiety half of that I'm sure on some days comes from not writing so yeah uh, yeah, I mean, I, I tried to be kind to myself the other day and wrote out, you know, uh, what am I doing on each day of the week? And only on Thursday and Friday did I allocate myself days to write poems. And this is the kind of poet lush that I am. One says poems in the vineyards and the other says poems at the beach. So nice. <laughs> I'm not content to just write poems at home. I have to go out into the vineyards and drink wine and write them there or go for a walk at the beach and like watch the waves roll in while I write poems about, I don't know, politicians having sex with each other. Oh, look, so. if, if that's the poem you're writing, then please <laughs> go to the beach. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why not? So, yeah, I mean, um, these are the kind of goals that I'm setting myself that are actually probably too, um, I don't know, the poetry lifestyle for me is just becoming – um, really lovely and uh, amazing, but less, um, I don't know, less less like a part-time job. I don't ever want it to be a full-time job that drags me down, but um, at least going at it as though it was something that I do know that I need to do at least every now and then I think is important. Mm. Yeah. Oh. I don't know. I don't know because you see when you, you use the word job there and I'm thinking – creativity as production (laughs) I guess yeah yeah. I know but what does job mean is it something that we do for money or is it something that we dedicate time to because we want to have a finished result um I don't know I I think that yeah, seeing it as work or as a job has the implication of people who don't enjoy their jobs not wanting to do it. But, I mean, I've been in a lot of creative jobs or work where it's actually been so positive for me and something that I've enjoyed going to and working at every day. And, of course, whether or not you get paid or you're a volunteer is kind of arbitrary at that point when you're in creative industries uh, because you barely get paid anyway. Mm. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think... If writing were my job, I would be uh, a happy girl. Yes, there's lots of angles to it. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I want to follow the thread you brought up before of anxiety, and obviously that's in Mm -hmm. the poem and anxiety that you just read too. Um, That can obviously be such a huge demotivator as well and something that makes it hard to function at all, let alone write. Um, are there things that you do to address that day to day? Um, I'm really interested in like the things that we do to support our writing practice as well. Like mm. again, going back to Melinda Bufton at the end of our chat, we talked about exercise and yeah. how so few writers are willing to sort of talk about the relatively unsexy process of putting on your leggings and going to the gym but how (laughs) deeply important that is yeah um Um, yeah yeah, look I I that is one thing that I do have something of a routine for I go to my pilates twice a week 
and I do put on the tights and, um, you know, the sports bra and it, I don't know, I do it 8.30 of a Monday morning. I was doing it 7.30 in the morning because I feel like if I don't do something at that time of day on a Monday, I don't start my week in a good place and I am tempted to spiral into that week of being on the couch saying that I'll do it tomorrow, um, not really being in the headspace to produce anything interesting. I guess my mind just doesn't switch on unless I have that uh, Kickstarter every week. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I think I'm probably mm-hmm. the same. Yeah. Everyone, you know, there's the whole Monday, oh, it's an excuse not to do anything because everyone's tired and a bit grumpy. And I just try and avoid that and not um, not have that happen at all. I really enjoy weekends because it's the time that I get to spend with my husband because he works during the, um, you know, Monday, Friday, 9 to 5, and I'm hanging out trying to write poems all day. Mm. Um, and so when Monday comes around, I really need to change from that weekend mindset into, all right, I'm – you know, I'm going to exercise, I'm going to get the stuff I need to eat at home and get set up on my laptop with my desk, hopefully remove some of the many piles of books that are currently surrounding me and it's an actual nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I just recently moved my reading pile off my desk because it was really stressing me out. <laughs> yeah, it's just. I feel like every time they grow, I'm like, built into this kind of cave space that I can't get out of. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean, even, I don't know about you, but even when I stop working to put all my books back on the shelves, I feel like it's an excuse to not be writing poetry. Um, You know how people say they clean the house and they tidy up when they're trying not to do something? Yes, Yes. Yeah. Mm. I worry that my um, inclinations to tidy my desk are tied to not doing something else, which then, of course, just makes the piles go higher and doesn't really help anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I feel like there would be, I hope that there are plenty of people listening who are in similar headspaces, be they PhD candidates or just people with non-traditional or even people with nine to five jobs, Mm. if we're trying to do this ephemeral thing, seemingly ephemeral thing of like catch and write down a poem. uh, Yeah. Everyone's process looks different. Mm. Um, And everyone, I think that's why I try to talk about it so much on here because I want to demystify the process for people. I want everyone to realize that like the way you're doing it is just as valid as the way that Stephen King was doing it or um, he's someone else who's writing process. I don't know. You know, there's like, you know, on that website, brain pickings, how there's always, there's like diagrams of like how early famous writers used to get up and stuff yeah. like oh, And there's all these things saying, oh, your, your brain's most active if you wake up during the night once at 2 a.m. and write for like four hours and then go back to sleep. I mean, I'm not going to do that. I really enjoy sleeping. Well, that um, would be for me a surefire way for me to have just the most anxious day on record. Right? Yeah. yeah. 
I couldn't bear it. I mean, I get tired when the sun goes down and I don't want to be up until it's back up. That's just my jam. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's like I'm camping all the time. Uh, It's kind of great. But, um, yeah, I I do really admire people who work full-time and still manage to write. I did my honours thesis, um, the sediment manuscript, while I was working full-time, and I only managed to do that because I was really sneaky about my browser windows and just writing poems when I was supposed to be working. So you wrote (laughs) an eco-poetry manuscript at the office? Yeah, yeah, I did. It was a really bad idea, but it got done. Um, That's amazing. How how do you feel about those poems now? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I don't read them very often. There's a few that I really like that are a series called In Remembrance of Disappearing Towns that are about towns in the Hunter that have um, either just gone under or have been bulldozed under basically uh, to make way for coal mining in the area. Mm. And they're still quite important to me because that's something that I, I care quite deeply about and is still an ongoing um catastrophic problem in the hunter region i had no idea about that yeah it's um it's been ongoing for decades now and yeah there are some towns where people either have had to move because of the huge amounts of uh noise and air pollution or they've been paid off to leave um they really haven't had any option so yeah, it's all pretty uh, gloomy out there. And it's such a beautiful part of the world as well. This is where our vineyards and, you know, the Tuscany of the south. And then you turn around and there's this just moon crater dug out um, mm. that stretches for kilometres and kilometres. It's really quite, um, I don't know, it's surreal but also just deeply depressing. Yeah. So that's my local, I guess, connection to those poems it was definitely a more local collection than this one which has gone sort of global anxiety politics um my connection with the world through the tv and social media and kind of where the brain goes when you when you're at home a lot of the time Mm. just to understand things in a bit of a wider way than just you know my four walls yeah for sure but again really funny like definitely has a sense of humor about it um you sent me this beautiful jory graham poem just before we started chatting and i wanted to lead you back to that just because i mean yeah i'm interested in in why it's on your mind and it's just so beautiful yeah well i was thinking about you know poets that i really connect with or poems that have changed my self or my practice and also I'm, I'm reading at the International Women's Day uh, reading in Newcastle tomorrow night with I think um, 16 other amazing female identifying poets. No way. And, yeah and so we you know we get three minutes to read one of our poems and a poem from a female writer that we really love and so um, I just was led for both um, for talking on this podcast as well as for reading tomorrow back to this Jory Graham poem that was probably the first poem that ever really, really spoke to me 
um, and that continues to be a part of my life. I recently put it on the um, on the syllabus for my first years at the Uni of Newcastle in their Introduction to Creative Writing course. There was a lot of um, older poetry from um, the old The Making of a Poem textbook, but there wasn't much contemporary stuff, and so I just thought I'd give them my favourite poem too. So it's been on my mind for the last six months or so, I guess. That's awesome. Um, I'd love for you to read it or as much of it as you'd like, but um, could I also get you to tell me a little bit more about Jory Graham because I know the name but very, very little about the poet. Um, yeah, I mean, well, she's been around for yonks, I guess. I don't have any super specific information on her except that she just kind of came onto the scene, won a lot of awards uh, and... Um, I think there was some kind of scandal about her awarding a prize to one of her students once. Um, so that's the kind of stuff. Whoa, my dog has just gone on an exciting romp through the house. <laughs> wow. Oh, he's very excited. He really likes Jory Graham too. Um, <laughs> actually, he really likes Salmon, which is the title of the poem. Ah. But yeah, Jory Graham, I guess, is just one of these like seminal American um, poets who were just in the zeitgeist at the time um, and now are all academics. So she's she's an academic at this point. And I would love to go to a conference in the States one time that she is uh, one of the faculty for, but that's in the future, mm. hopefully. But yeah, I mean, I just I just liked her work. I um, I really engaged with how she seems to integrate a really deep sense of the ecological with a very personal kind of um, internal understanding of the things that are going on around her. Yeah, and and this poem does both those things so beautifully, yeah. Mm. Um, Yeah, why don't we give it a read? I'll give it a whirl. Yeah. Bill the dog will hopefully enjoy the reading and won't disturb us too much. He's he's chilling. Oh, good. Salmon. I watched them once at dusk on television run in our motel room halfway through Nebraska. Quick, glittering, past beauty, past the importance of beauty, archaic, not even hungry, not even endangered, driving deeper and deeper into less. They leapt up falls, ladders and rock, tearing and leaping, a gold river and a blue river travelling in opposite directions. They would not stop, resolution of will and helplessness, as the eye is helplessness, when the image forms itself upside down, backward, driving up into the mind, and the world unfastens itself from the deep ocean of the given. Justice, aspen leaves, mother attempting suicide, the white night-flying moth, the ants dismantled bit by bit and carried in right through the crack in my wall. How helpless the still pool is, upstream, awaiting the gold blade of their hurry. Once, indoors, a child, I watched at noon through slatted wooden blinds, a man and woman, naked, eyes closed, climb onto each other on the terrace floor and ride. 
Two gold currents wrapping round and round each other, fastening, unfastening. I hardly knew what I saw. Whatever shadow there was in that world, it was the one each cast onto the other. The thin black seam they seemed to be trying to work away between them. I held my breath. As far as I could tell, the work they did with sweat and light was good. I'd say they travelled far in opposite directions. What is the light at the end of the day, deep, reddish gold, bathing the walls, the corridors, light that is no longer light, no longer clarifies, illuminates, antique, freed from the body of the air that carries it? What is it for the space of time where it is useless, merely beautiful? When they were done, they made a distance, one from the other, and slept, outstretched, on the warm tile of the terrace floor, smiling, faces pressed against the stone. Hmm. I'm just realising how appropriate um, a few of those lines are to what we've been talking about. What is yeah. it for the space of time where it is useless, merely beautiful? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I just think that it just taps into this idea of the sublime that I um, love as kind of the antithesis to anxiety in a way uh, or something that I'm searching for as an alternative to anxiety. Mm. Yeah, it's a beautiful idea. Mm. Um, I love the, the line of the thin black scene. They seemed to be trying to work away between them. Yeah, just that's... seems to speak to so much more than what's on the surface of the poem. Yeah, that's absolutely crazy. That. Mm. I, yeah, I got no words for those lines. Um, not to focus on the most technical aspect of this incredibly beautiful poem, but another thing that strikes me about it that's so different to your work, which is very spare in terms of punctuation. You tend to use line breaks instead of punctuation a lot of the time. And there's, I love this this section. With, it's got, I don't know, like 10 commas in it. Yeah, Once yeah. indoors, a child I watched at noon through slatted wooden blinds, a man and woman, naked, eyes closed, climb onto each other on the terrace floor and ride. Wow. It's quite interesting the way she's done it. I mean, they could easily have been um, each on their own line, but it would yeah. have made it different poem with a lot more space in it and I think she wanted to create the sense of those wooden blinds and the um um you know an enclosed space then then breaks out onto something open on the terrace floor yeah yeah totally I wouldn't have thought of that but yeah that's that's completely it too and that just kind of the rhythm of it is very seems very important yeah she does it again at the start um, so, you know, there's these two sections that she introduces. The first, I, wa- I watched them once at dusk on television run in our motel room halfway through Nebraska, quick, glittering. So she, again, starts with this kind of small room where you see her in the light of a, you know, TV sitting on the motel floor. Mm. And then it opens up into this light-filled world. And so the contrast between the two, the world of the, you know, these glimmering fish that are sort of writhing against each other, and then this sexual communion, I think, was what really drew me to the poem. Yeah, right. Yeah, I want to take this class. (laughs) 
uh, yeah, come along. It's great yeah. fun. Yes, uh, my yes. students usually are not that into poetry because they've just come from high school. And so uh, some of them are really engaged with this poem and enjoy talking through it and figuring out what's going on. And some of them just, uh, I, I have no idea. I don't want to read this anymore. Mm. So it's nice to have a, a few mixed responses, but yeah, I mean, I, I was in, I think third year when I did this poem with Bernd Selheim and it was a theory course rather than a creative writing course. And we, I don't even know what the topic was. I just, emailed him about six months later saying, hey, what was that poem with the salmon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And just got back the reply, uh, salmon, <laughs> because that's the name. So, yeah, yeah look, it, it I think will probably stay with me forever. And I just love the, um, the idea of starting with one scene and then pitching another one next to it and letting them work together and create new meaning. And I guess that's what I'm going to be trying to do with my next book is incorporating photography as a way to set two mediums next to each other that might have two very different meanings on their own, Mm. create something new in itself. So that's part of the handshake. The handshake is the title and it's looking towards the idea of Paul Solans that a poem is no different to a handshake um, in that it's kind of an exchange between writer and reader that is this momentary uh, um, trust, I guess. Mm. But it's also to do with the anxiety of shaking hands and um, the anxiety of meeting people, the physical responses to anxiety, but also a handshake between mediums and trying to bring them together in a way that they make sense yeah right. yeah the project is not only trying to create um poetry at the moment but also getting out and doing some photography that i'm going to be integrating into the work in a book that's it's multimodal that's great that that means you get to get away from the desk and get out of the the pile get out from the cave of books yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as what I do is not just taking photos of the creek and putting them with my Dawson's Creek poems. <laughs> <laughs> that is a danger, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I uh, mean, it, it could be fun, but, yeah, there are other other projects to work towards. But I was reading today, um, I had read this article where it quoted that Paul Salan, um a poem is like a handshake. And so I thought, okay, this is actually speaking a lot to the book that I want to write and started digging around and um, ended up with this book that I somehow hadn't read before called Don't Let Me Be Lonely, an American lyric. Have you heard of it? Yes, I have. No, absolutely. I haven't read it, but I've read Citizen, um, Claudia Rankin. Yeah, Claudia Rankin. Amazing. um, yeah, so she was the one who uh, originally quoted this um, porcelain idea of the handshake uh, that's just from a letter that he wrote. And um, and so I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to read this book. I mean, the, the idea of don't let me be lonely with a picture of a television with white screen, um, white noise. Yes, that's the, they're the words. Uh, just I thought this sounds very much like something that will – 
be good for me and uh, I adore it. Uh, I read it all over um, today and, oh, and so like I said, just amazed that I didn't find it because it includes photography and it's basically about these feelings of um, loneliness and anxiety and despair in different circumstances of her life. Um, but to go back to my, you know, inherent escapism, I was reading it while listening to the Dawson's Creek um, soundtrack playlist on Spotify. Nice. Yep. <laughs> and it was, it was actually the weirdest experience because a lot of that music is quite um, <sighs> depressing in itself. So I thought I'd just read out to you this section yeah, please. That I was reading and then tell you what I was listening to as I went through it. So this is a section from um, Don't Let Me Be Lonely. A friend drops by my home to visit, but I have at just that moment put on my coat. We leave and go to sit in Sal's pizzeria at the corner. Our conversation drifts until she says, I didn't like Coates' disgrace. I recommended this novel to her, so I smile because I feel accused of some wrongdoing, but I am also amused because it really doesn't matter, does it? He's not for everyone, I say. There's always another book to read. I recommend Zadie Smith's White Teeth. This friend won't be shrugged off. She wants to know why so many intelligent people like disgrace. I want to tell her that if she stopped thinking about people as intelligent, she might know why. I say instead something about nobody learning anything from history and that South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission is being critiqued, perhaps. I don't know. I try again by claiming Coetzee is suggesting the land is what survives. In the end, he is a naturalist. I don't know I think this before I say it. I chew on my pizza and wonder what a naturalist is, what the word means beyond its obvious commitment to natural laws. Does it have anything to do with euthanasia? She sits across from me in silence. She doesn't respond, doesn't initiate. Did you know Petrus means rock, I ask? Petrus is the name of the major black character in the novel. <coughs> That's my dog, hang on. It's so good. We'll keep going. As if I hadn't spoken, she asks emphatically, what woman hasn't been raped? In the novel, Petrus ignores a rape. I make no response. She goes to the bathroom. While she is in there, I put on my coat. After we part and I am climbing the stairs to my apartment, I think surely some percentage of women hasn't been raped. I don't know, though, really. Perhaps this is the kind of thing I can find out on Google. Then I think, maybe, that what woman hasn't been raped could be another way of saying this is the most miserable in my life. And there's an image of um, the Google web search bar with web images, groups, directory news, the search bar and then Google search and I'm feeling lucky that she's included as part of the text. And as I read that, just feeling absolutely knocked about, um, I was listening to If It Makes You Happy by Sheryl Crow. Uh, right. <laughs> just, <laughs> uh, I don't, I didn't even stop it. I just thought maybe, maybe this is how it's meant to be. Um, but I guess that gives you a pretty good example of the combination of things that are going on in my head as a poet at pretty much all times <laughs> are these, um, sort of global fears and, 
you know, feminist arguments that are common, constantly going around in my head to a soundtrack of just this absolutely nonsense 90s. 90s trash. trash. <laughs> um, and I just can't, I can't stop it. I think that's my creative process. Come with us now on a journey through time and space. To the world of the mighty things. 